2006, January 13th, Lecture 9, Stellar Spectra, Astronomy 162, Winter Quarter 2006, from the Evans Lab, 1008. We'll begin in just a moment. So I'm just curious how many of you actually checked out the uh, podcast stuff yesterday? Yeah, one or two people. Yeah, I don't expect this to be quite the same as the download of something you know, good to listen to, but it's there if you're interested. Um, we're going to keep doing it. It's kind of an experiment. The university's been sort of sent around an email that you could actually do this, and a, and a number of other universities are actually trying to do it institutionally. OSU is always a little bit behind the technology curve in some ways and ahead of it in others, so I'm kind of doing this on a voluntary bit. In my department, I'm the kind of the alpha geek, which means that if there's new technology, they watch until I'm done trying it, and then they adopt it themselves or walk away. So... I got a few people watching me doing this stuff. All right, Friday. That is even a good tennis for Friday, which is uh, always heartening to see. So let's begin today with a little um, finger exercise to get us all warmed up here on this unusually, disgustingly warm January. That's about to change. Yesterday we talked about stellar masses. So today's question has to do with the most precise as mass estimates for stars other than the sun have come from observations of what? Is it A, single nearby stars, B, visual binaries, C, eclipsing binaries, D, single-line spectroscopic binaries, or E, stars with Earth mass, Earth mass planets? So pick your answer, A, B, C, D, or E today, just like you would if you were on a test. Scribble it down in the upper right-hand corner of some notes somewhere, just to keep you honest. Okay, so having gotten your, everyone's got an answer, I hope. Compare your answer to the people around you and uh, see if you can agree. I don't expect a lot of discussion on this one, though. It's pretty straightforward. Okay, sounds like the hubbub's died down a little bit. And again, as the usual question, how many of you actually changed your answer as a result of discussion? A few fewer today. Okay, this one may be straightforward. How many of you said it was A, single nearby stars? B, visual binaries? 
C, eclipsing binaries. D, single-line spectroscopic binaries. And E, stars with Earth-mass planets. The answer is the other button. C, eclipsing binary stars. You may remember yesterday that I mentioned that all the other methods of measuring masses, first of all, it's got to be a binary. So single nearby stars, we're not going to get a good mass for, except for the sun. So that doesn't require most precise estimates. Stars with Earth's mass planets would be really nice, so fortunately we only know of one of those. So we're going to be falling back on binary stars. Visual binaries and spectroscopic binaries have the problem that the mass estimates depend upon the distance. Visual binaries, it depends on distance to the third power. Visual binaries, it goes like distance. So if you don't know the distance or don't know the distance very accurately, that feeds into the accuracy of your mass. But it turns out eclipsing binaries, they're rare, but if you can find them, they're golden. They're going to give you the best masses you can possibly get because it gives you all the information you need in a distance-independent fashion to work out the mass. So again, it's sort of an example of a little factoid that comes out of this, but it's, it's actually true. These rare stars are the best ways we have to measure masses. Good. Good answers on that. If you'll give me just a second here while I make sure I get out of this so they don't yell at me and blank that screen. We'll go on to today's lecture, Oops, which is bouncing too fast. So we've been talking about the properties of stars, things we can observe. We're, we're engaged in this exercise. What is it? Describe it. Describe the stars. We've so far described the distances and motions of stars. We've described stellar brightness and how we measure that. Yesterday, we described how we measure the masses of stars and said a little bit at the end about measuring the radii of stars. So you can see what we're doing. We're building together most of the physical properties of stars through measurements. How far away they are, plus their brightness gives me their luminosity, their total power output. The mass tells me how much stuff is there. The radius tells me whether I'm dealing with a small, compact object or a big, giant star. There's a couple last few pieces, and these are going to come together now with the idea of stellar spectra. We're going to deal with the spectra as to what they are today, and on, Mon on Monday, Monday, on Tuesday, because Monday, of course, is the Martin Luther King Day holiday, we're going to bring all of these pieces together. And we're going to try to ask, what do the various combined data that we now have for the description of stars begin to give us some important questions that we could turn around and begin to ask, how do stars work? We're not there yet. We're not ready to ask, how do stars work yet? But we're almost there. We need some extra information. And that final really important piece comes from stellar spectra. So the key ideas today are to look at the spectral properties of stars. Now not just their brightness, but how their light is distributed over many wavelengths. We'll take a spectrum of the star. The first key idea is to talk about the colors of stars. That's the first hint to what's going on. And not surprisingly, a star's color depends upon its temperature. Stars are hot, dense balls of gas. Therefore, they behave to a first order like a black body and therefore obey the first of Kirchhoff's laws, that a hot solid or a hot dense gas emits a continuous spectrum. This means that Alavine's law, the color of a star will depend upon its temperature in the sense that red stars are cooler and blue stars are hotter. So just the aggregate color of the star, whether it's emitting more red or blue light, tells us something about the temperature of the star, the temperature of the gases in the atmosphere of the star. We're then going to introduce the idea of stellar spectral classification, being able to actually sort stars by the appearance of their absorption line spectra. This was a great surprise. It began in the 19th century, but really in the 20, early 20th century was the time when this per, per area really developed. It turns out to be absolutely key to understanding how stars work 
by giving us a way of getting at their physical properties. In particular, what we're going to do is we're going to take a spectrum of the star and classify it by the appearance of spectral lines in that star. But the important key, and this actually took a long time to figure out, we'll say, tell a little bit of that story, is the spectral differences that I see among stars reflect primarily differences in temperature, not differences in composition. This was a big surprise, and we'll show you how that actually works. It's an extremely important and powerful tool for us. In particular, we can actually turn the spectral classification and give the star a type based upon the appearance of its spectrum, the so-called spectral sequence, which it turns out is a temperature sequence, as we'll see going from hot to cool stars, and we assign a letter to the type OBAFGKMLNT. These are the nine spectral types, and of course this is not surprisingly, you're going to have to memorize this sequence, but we'll be hitting you over the head with it over the next few days, and so you'll be able to get it down. The OBAFGKM and the new classes L and T really form the basis of being able to say, oh, that star is of this type, that star is of another type. So now I can actually, if you will, put names on stars. I can distinguish stars by their spectra, which is really distinguishing them by their temperature. This will turn out to be extremely important to us as a tool for understanding how stars work physically, as we'll see and develop over the next week. So the key ideas today is how stellar spectra is our friend. We'll start with the ba most basic spectral property. What is the color of a star? All the color is is saying whether I have more light coming out at red or blue wavelengths. This is a good way of looking at it. Do stars look blue? Do stars look yellow? Do stars look red? Deep red, deep violet, or so forth. We don't see green stars and orange stars and things like that per se, but we do see stars emitting at all wavelengths, but some wavelengths more than others. Stars are hot, dense balls of gas. Right? The sun is a mass of incandescent gas. You want to remember that as a little sing-song. As a consequence, Kirchhoff's first law tells us that a hot, dense solid or a hot, dense gas emits a continuous spectrum. In fact, it emits essentially a black body spectrum to a first approximation. Now, it turns out that stars are not quite so simple because the hot, dense part is actually the underlying parts of the star. We call that the photosphere. The place where most of the photons come from is called the photosphere. It's the lowest, densest layer that we can see into. Below that, the star's gases become so dense that basically the star becomes opaque. The star is gaseous all the way down to the center, to a, to a good approximation. But we can only see in so far. A good example is like a cloud. Clouds are, well, their cloud particles are gaseous all the way through, but they look like they have a surface. That's because I'm looking into that cloud as deep as I can before it becomes opaque. So stars have this similar surface of opaqueness. We call that the photosphere. Approximately speaking, it uh, behaves like a black body characterized by a single temperature. So now we have a way to define the temperature of a star. Pretty clearly, it's going to turn out where the, what the temperature of a star is depends upon where you are. The centers of stars are going to be millions, and in the cases of some very massive stars, billions of degrees Kelvin. But we don't see into the interior. We only see that last hot sort of last layer on the outside, just like we see the outside of clouds, not all the way to the inside. And it's the temperature of that layer that I'm going to define as the star's temperature. Sometimes you'll see your book or articles or even myself refer to this as an effective temperature. So don't think of it as the temperature throughout the star, like body temperature in a person. It's actually the temperature of that outermost layer that I can see before I just simply can't penetrate the depth and density of the star. So that defines the photosphere. 
This photosphere behaves like a black body, which means it obeys both the Stefan-Boltzmann law, so the amount of energy coming out per square area goes like temperature to the fourth power, which we're, we've used in various ways and we'll use some more later, and it also obeys Wien's law. Wien's law tells us that the hotter objects are bluer, cooler objects are redder. So because it behaves like a black body, I can get an immediate qualitative read of a star's relative temperature just by looking at its color. For example, a very, very hot star, and by hot now I mean temperatures in that photosphere of between 10 and 50,000 degrees Kelvin are going to look blue. Good examples of this are like the star Sirius in the sky. It's a very hot star, about 10,000 degrees. It looks slightly blue-white when you look at it on a clear night. Sort of middling temperature stars, and these turn out to be temp stars with temperatures of about 6,000 degrees, are going to sort of emit light of all wavelengths, but they're going to kind of peak out at kind of yellow-green wavelengths. And when you combine that and mix that together with red on the, on the low energy end and blue on the high energy end, you get a kind of a yellowish-white. The sun is a middle temperature star, and of course, every school kid you know of who draws the sun gets out the big yellow crayon. The sun appears slightly yellow because most of its light is in the middle of the visible spectrum, falls off towards the red, falls off towards the blue, exactly following Wien's law. Finally, some stars, when they're cool, temperatures of about 3,000 degrees Kelvin, will emit the Wien law peak will be now out at red or infrared wavelengths. So the star is going to emit most of its light as red and infrared light, and very, very little blue, green, yellow light in the middle. As a consequence, the star is going to look red. For example, Arcturus or Betelgeuse are two examples of stars. If you go out and look at them in the nighttime sky, they appear blood red. Aldebaran, another one, the bright red eye of the bull. All of those are going to turn out to be very, very cool stars. So just by looking at the color, does it emit a lot of blue light, a lot of red light, or kind of in the middle and yellowish, gives me a qualitative estimate. Oh, blue stars are all hot, red stars are all cool, yellow stars are just kind of in the middle exactly following Wien's law to a very, very good approximation. So that's just the color. I'm just looking at the broad wash of blue versus middle versus red. But there's a lot more to the story. I can look at the spectrum now of the star by now, instead of looking at the star with my eye, pass that light through a spectrograph and break it into its rainbow of colors in detail and look in detail at both the shape of the sp continuous spectrum and the absorption lines or emission lines that might appear because I am, after all, looking at a ball of gas. So this hot, dense photosphere that's responsible for the general continuous wash of color that gives us the color of the star based on Wien's law has above it is not a solid surface. It's not like the ground here. It simply grades out into a thinner but still very hot atmosphere that lies above that photosphere. That atmosphere is transparent because it's very thin. It lets me see down to the layer of the photosphere. So what we have is a classic Kirchhoff situation of a hot, dense solid being viewed through a thinner but still hot gas. And when that happens, I'm going to produce an absorption line spectrum following Kirchhoff's third law. So what I see when I look at the spectrum of a star is I see the underlying continuous spectrum from the photosphere, and then I see the absorption lines from the intervening gas in the upper atmosphere of that star. So I see a continuous spectrum with a superimposed spectrum of absorption lines. Those absorption lines come from the elements that make up that upper stellar atmosphere. And it turns out that they are going to be now 
characteristic of the element content of the star itself. So a spectrum tells us we're looking now at the layers, the absorption lines are looking at the layers above the photosphere. The continuous spectrum is the photosphere itself. Now the big question people get into right away is, can I use the characteristics of that spectrum to learn something about stars? And in particular, can I identify different types of stars by their spectrum? The analogy here, of course, is what the chemists were thinking in the late 19th century. They could take various compounds and by making a flame spectrum and looking at the emission lines that came off that flame spectrum, distinguish different compounds into different chemical types. And what people thought was, oh, this is a way of chemically typing stars. I can find calcium stars and hydrogen stars or whatever. Or maybe type A stars and type B stars and type C stars that all share common spectral properties that just distinguish them in some way. So the question is, can the spectrum tell me something else about the star that gives me a handle on, on its description? And that's really a lot of what this lecture is about, is what the spectra tell us about stars. Here's what a spectrum of a star looks like. Now, I've chosen, in fact, this is the bright star Vega. So this is the brightest star in the, in the sky. It's um, in the summer sky. It's a very good example of what's a, call, a very hot star, about 10,000 degrees Kelvin. What I've shown here is a classic photographic line spectrum. That's how you can see the word absorption line. You can see these dark lines. You see there's more light. This is the blue side and red side. I haven't colorized this. So blue is short wavelengths. Red is long wavelengths. This is pretty much as much as the eye can see, is this visible range from a little bit under 4,000 angstrom's wavelength up to a little over 6,000. So this is deep blue, yellow, and kind of red colors in here. All Roy-G-Biv spreads across here. Now, you can see that it's brighter at blue wavelengths and, and fainter at red wavelengths. So you see this general hump shape, and there's a peak here in the spectrum. Now, Wien's law would have predicted for a, for a spectrum of a black body of 10,000 degrees that that should continue and peak out around here. It's not peaking at 3,000. There's a dip, big divot taken out of the spectrum here. That divot is due to absorption from hydrogen in the atmosphere of the star and we see a series of dark absorption lines. These are the lines of hydrogen. This is the line for the absorption from the 2 to 3 level, 2 to 4, 2 to 5, 2 to 6, and all crowding up. And photons here are capable of stripping that electron completely off hydrogen. And so I see superimposed on what should have been a simple, unbroken rainbow wash of color is it's broken up by lots of hydrogen lines. Now, I've just emphasized the hydrogen lines. There's clearly a lot more going on. This line here, for example, is a line of sodium. There's little lines of iron in here. There's all kinds of other weak lines. But what really just stands out in this spectrum are these very, very deep, dark lines of hydrogen. You can see them very clearly. So we're going to show spectra of different kinds. The traditional way is the old photographic spectrum, where you see a bright wash of color and literally see dark lines. Or we're going to see the so-called spectral scan, where what I plot is the strength of the light as a function of wavelength always plotted as blue on the left, red on the right. I'm always going to stick to that convention when I plot such a thing. And this allows me to show dips here are places of darkness. So example of two different kind of ways of expressing the spectrum. And here's what a spectrum of a real star looks like. This is the star Vega in the summer sky. Now the classification of stars began very early on. It began in the 1860s by eye, before the use of photography in astronomy. 
The person who really first got the ball rolling, people had looked at stars with simple spectrographs attached to telescopes before, but it was a Jesuit priest by the name of Angelo Secchi working from the rooftop observatory of a church in Rome who actually decided to build himself a small prism spectrograph and observe with his eye the spectra of 4,000 bright stars. It's a really heroic piece of work. He found that as he looked at the spectra with his eye and he classified them sort of mentally, he saw that the stars basically divided themselves up into four basic groups where the spectra all looked very similar to each other. He called them type Roman numeral 1, Roman numeral 2, and so forth. Now, Secchi did not understand physically what was going on. There was no atomic theory. The, theory, the practice of spectroscopy in the chemistry lab was only just getting rolling. But it was pretty clear that stars really sorted themselves by spectra. There was something different about appearance of strong lines or weak lines. Big fat lines and red stars, blue stars with virtually no lines at all. So it was a very simple classification. It was very qualitative at this stage. But it got the ball rolling. I always think he's kind of a hero because you can think about how hard it is to do a photographic spectrum and analyze it after the fact. Imagine memorizing thousands of stars in your head. It was really quite an amazing achievement. But, you know, there's just no substitute for a picture sometimes. So the real advance when spectroscopy really got rolling was when a photography was applied to the problem. And you actually could record the spectrum and look at it at your leisure rather than trying to see it with the human eye, which just is not a good recording device. This really began about 20 years after Secchi's work in the 1880s through 1890s when a rich donor by the name of Henry Draper gave the Hollage Carver Observatory a large bequest on his death and set in motion what was now known as the Henry Draper Memorial Survey at Harvard. Harvard College Observatory was the center of astronomy in the United States during the late 1890s. The rise of the Western observatories was still many decades away. And a professor by the name of Edward Pickering led this team. They had telescopes in the Harvard College Observatory in Cambridge, just outside of Boston. And realizing they wanted to get stars in the southern half of the hemisphere, they went down to Arequipa, Peru, and set up a similar telescope and began to photograph the sky. Now, you could take a spectrum one after another, but what they did instead was use something called an objective prism, where instead of taking a picture of a star field, they ran the light through a prism in front of the camera and spread out the light from all the stars into little individual spectra. This is a modern colorized version of that. And you can see a wash of you know, red, red through blue. And you can see it's broken up by various. Here's one with very bright absorption lines. You can see little thin lines in there. Each of these little spectra, you can get them hundreds at a time. Over the course of a few years, they collected spectra of 220,000 stars. So we've gone from 4,000 to 200,000 in, in a few years. And of course, if you have a large mass of data, nowadays what you do is you go get yourself a computer. In the 1880s, there were no electronic computers, but there were bored faculty wives, and often whom were very well educated, but because of the mores of the time, could not get jobs at Harvard. But they could get jobs being human computers. They anal helped analyze the data. They were trained in how to work their way through the data, and being very educated people that they are, began to do the hard work of analysis of spectra while Pickering sort of led the entire group. Now, with 200,000 stars, you can now begin to distinguish similarities among the various spectras. In the 1890s, Edward Pickering and the best of his computers, a woman by the name of Wilhelmina Fleming, made the first attempt to go through and classify stars by similarities and differences in their spectra into broad spectral classes. And they started with 10,000 of the very best stellar spectra. 
What they noticed was those bright hydrogen lines, the deep, dark hydrogen absorption lines that show up in that spectrum I showed you earlier, turn out to be very distinctive. And so they decided to key on those hydrogen lines, because they knew what they were, and decided to sort stars not by just sort of general gestalt appearance, which is what Sechi did, but by the relative strengths of the hydrogen lines. So let's pick out stars that have very, very strong hydrogen lines, middling strong hydrogen lines, and then weak or absent hydrogen lines, and find divisions. Call stars of type A have the strongest, B have the next strongest, C, D, E, and so forth. And they skipped over like I and J are similar, so they skipped over I and J, and they stopped up around P. P was reserved for peculiar. So they sorted the stars from A through P, actually A through Q, P, Q, R, you know, something like that, M, N, O. They stopped at O, A through O, P was reserved for peculiar, meaning it didn't look like anything else, and just sorted them on the basis of hydrogen line strength. Hydrogen strongest to the A stars, the very weakest and completely absent was type O, and so on and so forth through the scales. So that's where they started. They started with hydrogen. And then they looked at the system and saw that the other absorption lines, there's iron lines and helium lines and sodium lines and things like that, there was no sequence. They were just all over the place. Some stars with really strong hydrogen and really strong lines of other elements and not. Sometimes you'd see very, very weak hydrogen, and the calcium lines would be really strong. But other stars, they'd be really just as weak hydrogen, but there's no calcium. So they started out thinking the primary guiding pattern was hydrogen, but the other lines didn't fall into place. So it really was a problem. It really bothered them for a while. Well, here's the principal players. This is Edward Pickering and Wilhelmina Fleming. And the Harvard College computers in the computer room circa about 1900. The other Harvard professors were actually somewhat appalled that Pickering was actually hiring women to do the scientific work and referred to this group pejoratively as Pickering's harem. Um, they were, however, I should point out this picture, is in this picture are three of the most important astronomers of the early 20th century. And it's not Edward Pickering. It is Wilhelmina Fleming. This woman over here, Antonia Mori, actually discovered a type of pulsating variable star that is the key to discovering cosmic distances. This is uh, Fleming here. And then uh, right here, this woman is Annie Jump Cannon. Fleming is in the back here. So these three astronomers in the group are actually three of the most important astronomers of the early 20th century because their work, even though none of them had advanced degrees nor were faculty on Harvard, were keys to opening the doors to astrophysics. The real hero of this particular story is one of the Harvard computers named Annie Jump Cannon, who in 1901 was working on the problem of stellar spectra with Pickering and Fleming, and noticed that the simple sorting by hydrogen lines was not the right way to go. She had a very good mind for matching patterns and saw that there were large-scale patterns that rolled through the different spectra. Even though thousands were laid out in front of her, she could see that there really was a sequence, a very specific sequence of growing and shrinking line strengths, not just of hydrogen, but of all the other lines in the spectrum. What she did was she found that this artificial ordering, A, B, C, D, and E, that Pickering and Fleming had started out with was wrong. It wasn't the right thing because the temperatures were all over the place and reordered by hottest stars to coolest stars. Many of the subclasses that they found were turning out to be redundant. They weren't necessary. And so she took this very complicated system and simplified it a great deal. In fact, she boiled it down to seven classes. Now, you still kept the letters of the Pickering-Harvard system which was strength of hydrogen, but now they got reshuffled 
into order of temperature to the seven primary classes O, B, A, F, G, K, and M. The hot O-type stars, the coolest M stars, and these are the A stars with the strongest hydrogen lines. So O and B stars have weak hydrogen lines. F, G, K, and M stars have progressively weaker hydrogen lines, and the hydrogen lines peak out at A. But now, hydrogen is not the important thing. It's the stellar temperature that is the important sorting point, from the hottest M stars to the coolest, hottest O stars to the coolest M stars. Now, later work added three more classes, R, N, and S, that have since been removed. So earlier versions of this you might run into will give you 10 classes, O, B, A, F, G, K, M, R, N, and S. Remembering O, B, A, F, G, K, M basically is often tricky. There are a number of mnemonics that are made up for this. If any of you are medical students or have friends who are medical students, you know that medical students have long lists of things they have to memorize, like the bones in the face and the bones in the ear and the hand. And they have these long mnemonics, many of which, if I actually told you them or recorded them in a podcast, would probably get me fired because they're really obscene. Um, but astronomers have a fairly clean one. The Harvard one was, and I apologize for this, but it's early 20th century Harvard, Oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Not very good. 1960s, the Berkeley astronomers said, Oh, buy a fine green kilo, man. Which might tell you a little bit about what Berkeley was like in the 1960s. <laughs> um, and at Caltech during the, the late 1970s and early 1980s, when I was there, the 70s and 80s was just past the era of Watergate, we used the RN and S classifications was, On bad afternoons, fermented grapes keep Mrs. Richard Nixon smiling. Um, which was really kind of a terrible thing to say about Mrs. Nixon, but it helped us remember what these things were all about. And you can make up your own mnemonics. We'll talk a little bit about that later. This is Annie Jump Cannon later in life, as she's been now become one of the most honored astronomers of the early 20th century. Mrs. Cannon by herself classified 220,000 stars by eye using the techniques that she's shown here with a magnifying glass and a glass photographic plate. It was an extremely heroic piece of work. This is Canon's sequence, O through M. Now, we'll ignore the numbers here for a second. This is the bright lines of hydrogen here. You look about A stars here. These are the bright hydrogen lines. It's a little hard to see here in this colorized version. But you can see the O stars are blue. The M stars are mostly red. You can see this sort of diagonal wash of peak color. The green here in the colorization, there really aren't green stars. But if you mix with your eye, green, yellow, red, and blue, you get kind of a white yellow. So you can see the wash of Wien's law rolling through, peak in the blue for hot, peak in the red for cool. And you can see how lines grow in strength. Here's a hydrogen line growing in strength. This is a hydrogen line from the 4 to 2 transition. Peaks out in A and then fades out. But you can see other lines here, like the sodium line getting fainter. Various calcium lines down here getting fainter and brighter. And all these little hash of things are iron lines. If you just sort of stare at this for a while, you can see that there are washes of patterns in the spectral lines that roll through this. And Annie Cannon's achievement was recognizing this, this pattern and noticing that that pattern naturally sorted itself by color, therefore by temperature. So Cannon figured out the essential ingredient of stellar spectra is what matters is the stellar temperature, as we're going to see here in a moment. Now, Cannon further refined the spectral classification sequence because OBAFGKM was a little too coarse and actually found that even within type A, there were clearly gradations in the strengths of the various lines. And so when the, since the basic letter classes were already there, she subdivided it by a number. So she'll start out with A0 is the hottest A star, 
followed by A1 all the way up through A9 is the coolest A star. After A9, OBA, F became F0 and so forth. Before A0 came B9 because a, B comes before A in the spectral sequence, and so on and so forth. So this allows you now to see there's finer gradations, not so much in the hydrogen strengths as now in the strengths of various and sundry absorption lines as they come and go through there. And you actually can see this fine gradation. There really are about 70, or 100, 70 to 80 fine gradations in spectra. You really can divide them up into class, OBAFGKM, and subclass. Now, in between the years of 1911 and 1924, she wrote, she classified 220,000 stars because Henry Draper paid the money. It's now known as the Draper Catalog. We actually have a copy of it. It's over in the Rare Books collection now over in the library. It consists of a series of volumes of about three feet of, of linear bookshelf space listing all the stars, the classifications, and the notes. It's really, if you have a chance and you can go through and you're really interested in this particular part of history, reading her introduction to the to Draper Catalog is really quite interesting. She describes the process by which stellar classification occurs. And I've kind of repeated this, went out and read that in preparing this lecture. It's really quite a fascinating story. Now, the classical seven ca classes, the M stars for the longest time were the coolest stars known. But in recent years, new digital sky surveys that could actually push mapping the sky into infrared wavelengths, well beyond where photographic techniques can work, have discovered some extremely cool stars, cooler than about 2,500 degrees Kelvin, that fall into two brand new spectral classes, which have only been proposed in the last few years. The first of these is the L star class, which are stars between 1300 and 2500 Kelvin. And they're distinguished because it, when the stars get very cool, you begin to form molecules of metal hydrides, basically metal hydrogen compounds, and certain neutral metals become strong in the spectra of those things. And then there's things called T dwarfs. These actually are not stars. These are actually lower mass than stars, but bigger mass than planets. They're technically what are often referred to as brown dwarfs. And these are distinguished by having very, very broad bands of methane. These things now have spectra that look like the spectrum, more like the spectrum of Jupiter than the spectrum of stars. And we're looking at extremely cool things, things cooler than 1300 degrees Kelvin. So these brand new two classes, L and T, have been added to our spectral classification system, of which L is the bottom of the stellar group, and T is the beginning of substellar objects that have distinctive spectrum. Now, understanding how these spectra work fell to another of the Harvard people, but this time an honest-to-God Harvard graduate student. Harvard finally got over things in the 1920s, actually started admitting women to the graduate program. And one of the most brilliant students they had in this group was Cecilia payne Gaposchkin, whose 1925 PhD dissertation is still a classic in the field. This Harvard classification was purely empirical. It was just people looking at spectra and sorting them by changes in the spectral line shapes and colors. But they didn't understand how the spectra worked because in the, in the 19, early 1900s, there was no theory of atomic spectroscopy. In the 1920s, with the work of Bohr and others, people began to understand the physics of atomic structure and how absorption lines are actually formed by jumping electrons. Cecilia Payne-Gaposchkin studied this physics and applied it to astrophysics using the new atomic physics to say why the spectra should appear the way they do. The real bottom line of her thesis was actually a tremendous surprise. It really sent shockwaves throughout astronomy and astrophysics. All the differences of spectra people thought were due to differences in composition. Some stars had strong calcium lines because they had more calcium. Some stars had 
sodium because they have more sodium. They just couldn't understand why temperature depended on anything. And Kaposhkin said, no, what really is, the stars are mostly hydrogen and helium, and only 1% are the metals. And what we're seeing is an effect of temperature on the excitation of the gas, on where those electrons are inside their atoms, dictates what absorption lines will appear, not just what atoms are there. In other words, a spectrum doesn't just trace what's there, it doesn't trace composition, it traces excitation. And so it was actually Cecilia Payne-Kaposchkin who showed that the universe is mostly hydrogen helium. It's a tremendous piece of work. All right. We'll leave that aside for the moment because we need to go on with the spectral classification. This is the spectral sequence now drawn as cartoons, OBAFGKM and L. I'll stop here at L for this place. What we see is that the spectral sequence is a sequence of temperature. The very hottest stars at about 50,000 degrees Kelvin and above are O stars. The very coolest stars at 1300 Kelvin are the L stars, and everything else is in between. The sun, for example, is about five, 6,000 degrees Kelvin. As you go from hotter to cooler, Wien's law tells you you go from the bluest stars to the reddest stars. So you reflect this temperature sequence as a sequence of color. That means if I can go out and measure the color of a star quantitatively, by, say, looking at a red filter and a blue filter and comparing the amount of light in each, I get a stand-in or a surrogate for the measurement of temperature or spectrum. But the bottom line of this, underline it very strongly and repeat it, the spectral sequence is a temperature sequence. It has nothing to do with composition. It's entirely a reflection of hotter stars have different atomic excitation conditions in them than cooler stars, and that's what determines what spectral lines you see in the spectrum. Let's underline this again. The spectral sequence is a temperature sequence. Just because I see lots of calcium in a star doesn't mean it's a calcium star. It's actually all hydrogen and helium. The differences depend upon differences in temperature. And again, what's happening here is remember that an absorption line occurs when an electron in one orbit is excited into a high orbit by absorbing a photon of exactly the energy it needs to make that jump. Now, most atoms want to be in their ground state which means most of the absorptions in hydrogen, if all the hydrogen was in the ground state, would be in the 1 to 2, 1 to 3, 1 to 4 jumps. Those are all in the ultraviolet. You wouldn't see those from the ground. You wouldn't see those in a photograph of a star's spectrum. So why is it in a 10,000 degree star I see 2 to 3, 2 to 4, 2 to 5 transitions? What's that electron doing up in the 2 level? Well, the only way the electron could be in the 2 level and persist there is if it's constantly getting smacked by other atoms and keep getting collisionally excited into that level. So only it's going to happen when the temperature is hot enough for those collisions to have enough energy to put you in the n equals 2 level. Once you're in n equals 2, a photon comes by and says 2 to 3, red line, 2 to 4, blue-green line, 2 to 5, blue line, and so on and so forth. So which spectral lines you see depends upon how the gas is excited. Are all the electrons quietly down in their ground state? Or are collisions in hotter gas pushing the electrons into high states? And so a slightly different subset of lines is visible. The other thing the temperature does for you is you can hit an atom so hard you strip an electron off. Well, if you go from oxygen with eight electrons around it to oxygen with seven electrons because you've stripped it off, the electron orbits resort themselves and the spectrum changes. So you see a spectrum not of neutral oxygen with eight electrons, but of singly ionized 
oxygen with seven electrons. It's a different set of lines. So which lines you see depends upon whether the atoms have all their electrons or have lost one, two, three, or more. So the ionization state matters. And all of those are determined, first and foremost, by how hot the gas is. That was Cecilia Payne-Kaposchkin's real key insight into this. So the implications are as follows. Differences of composition are relatively unimportant. It's at best a second-order effect in relative strengths of lines. What really determines what lines you see in a spectrum is differences in the temperature between these. I'm kind of belaboring the point a bit, but it's very important to get across. Because people think that, remember, we talked about spectrum tells you composition. It turns out learning composition is hard. We first have to determine the temperature, which tells us what line should be there. And only then can we begin to ask the second order question about composition. So, again, the example is hydrogen lines. Now, how do we understand the spectral sequence? Hydrogen, the visible hydrogen lines come from the excited N equals 2 state. In B stars, B stars have temperatures between about 11,000 and 30,000 degrees Kelvin. Gas at this temperature is so energetic that when one hydrogen smacks another, it's more likely to kick the electron off the atom entirely rather than exciting it. So what happens? As the star gets hotter, less and less of the hydrogen has an electron. If you ain't got an electron, you ain't making a spectral line. And a hydrogen without its electron is just a proton. It can't absorb any light. So what happens as the star gets hotter and hotter, the hydrogen lines get weaker and weaker because less and less of the hydrogen can make absorption lines. The hydrogen is just protons at that point. At A stars, it's kind of a Goldilocks thing. B stars are too hot. A stars are just right. It's just right to have a lot of the electrons up in that n equals 2 level. So those absorptions, 2 to 3, 2 to 4, 2 to 5, that produce the visible light hydrogen lines are perfect. They can just beautifully make all the absorption lines really, really strong. Lots of the hydrogens in the n equals 2 state. By the time I get up to G stars, stars like the sun, now those collisions are still going on, but the temperature's lower. The temperature's lower, the energy of the gas is lower proportionally. And so, yes, a hydrogen's smacking into another hydrogen, but there's not enough energy in that collision for the electron to make it up into the n equals 2 level. It can only go up halfway. Well, I can't stand between the steps. So either you get all the energy you need to make the jump from the collision, or you don't. Every now and then, you get a real fast particle and you atom collision, and you will make the jump, but less and less often. So now, in the cooler stars, there's plenty of hydrogen with its electrons. It's more than happy to make absorption lines, but very few of those electrons are in that n equals 2 sweet spot. And so the visible light hydrogen lines are very, very weak. If, on the other hand, I go into the ultraviolet, I will see the ultraviolet lines, which arise out of the ground state, very, very strong. But I can't observe that from the ground. I have to go into space. So the visible light lines are, are weak. So B stars, the hydrogen lines are weak because the star is too hot. G stars, the hydrogen lines are weak because the star is too cool. A stars, the lines are strongest because the temperature is just right for excitation of hydrogen. And in fact, if I draw on this diagram here, here's O through M, spectral type and strengths of the various lines, temperature for reference across the top, different elements have different sweet spots in temperature for excitation. Hydrogen's the green line. It has a sweet spot around 10,000 Kelvin, weaker at cool end, weaker at the hot end. Helium, with one electron stripped off, its sweet spot is in the O stars. 
Helium, with all of its electrons, its sweet spots in B stars. Stars like the sun, the sweet spots, iron lines with one electron, iron two. Calcium gets sweet up here in K. In really cool stars, I start getting molecules like titanium oxide. So different elements and different molecule combinations have different sweet spots in temperature. And as you can see, they get strong and then they get weak, and that's what gives you the patterning of absorption lines through the system. And that's why K stars have really strong calcium lines and really weak hydrogen, but a star like the sun has middling weak hydrogen and middling weak calcium, but an F star or an A star has super weak calcium but very strong hydrogen and so forth. It's a very distinctive pattern guided entirely by temperature. Now the modern synthesis of the system, taking on from the Harvard classification, is to add the so-called luminosity classification. Now we're going to repeat this again on, on Tuesday, so I'm not going to dwell on it too long today. Basically what they found was is that there's also stars of different luminosity, whether they're super luminous or very, very intrinsically faint, have an impact on the spectrum, and they assign a Roman numeral class. Now I'm going to repeat these on Monday, so I'm just going to flash this at you today. How the luminosity classification works is as follows. Absorption lines are pressure sensitive. They depend upon whether the gas is really tightly packed together or really spread out. Lines get very, very broad as the pressure increases. So if you get two lines really close together, the bouncing of those things together broadens the lines out. As you let the pressure off the atmosphere, the lines bounce together less and the lines become narrower. The result is physically larger stars have narrower lines. If you're a physically larger star, you have more surface area to emit, and therefore you're going to be more luminous at a given temperature, because temperature tells you how much energy you emit per square meter. Okay, there's a lot of words there. I'll show you a picture. Here's the A stars, but I've got a supergiant star, a giant, and a dwarf star, a main sequence star, and these are the widths of the hydrogen lines. In a supergiant, the lines are really narrow. We have a big, puffy, low pressure, low-density atmosphere. Giants are kind of in the middle. Main sequence stars are small, tight, compact, high-pressure atmospheres. So the breadth of the lines, especially hydrogen, is a clue to the luminosity. Big, fat, puffy, superluminous supergiants have super narrow lines. Small, compact, dwarf main sequence stars have very, very broad lines because the pressure is really high. But they all have exactly the same temperature because they're all A5. So there is a second-order distinction telling you something about the luminosity. So this gives us a spectral classification of stars. G-Sun is a G2 five star. It's a G2 dwarf, a high-pressure atmosphere. Winter sky, Betelgeuse, the bright red star in the constellation of Orion, is a cool supergiant star. Rigel is a hot supergiant. It's the blue-looking star in Orion. Sirius is an A dwarf. It's a high-pressure 10,000 Kelvin star. And Aldebaran, bright red star in the sky, is a red giant. It's actually intermediate between a supergiant and a dwarf. So we can classify these all together. We learn something about the stars just from looking at their spectrum combined with other information. So why is this so important? Well, the reason is I, I hope I've illustrated in today's lecture is a spectral classification gives us a way to estimate to a first approximation important physical characteristics of the stars by looking at their spectral features. It's going to turn out to be an exceedingly powerful tool for beginning to understand the physics of stars. 
And we're going to begin to now put all the pieces together. We've got all the descriptions. We need to put them all together. And on Tuesday, we'll do that and see the important questions the stellar structure is going to answer. Okay, so power off, power off, screens up, up, PC screen, delete, yes, and empty the set, yes. Okay. Okay. You're doing something, okay. Oh, they changed the time on you, of course. Okay. Um, can we arrange to take it? Let me get. First of all, it's time to start getting my list together. Oops. <laughs>